It's your time. Join global thought leader, executive producer, and New York Times bestselling author T.D. Jakes and today's leading culture shifters for an experience unlike any other. At the 2024 International Leadership Summit, spiritual and business leaders can gain the practical tools they need to maximize their timing for success. With world-class discussions, breakout sessions, and networking opportunities, this is where your dreams turn into reality. Timing is everything, and your time is now. March 21st through 23rd in Dallas, Texas, Register today at thisisils.org. Welcome to the Jonathan underscore Foster podcast, where your host considers questions and concepts through the lens of Rene Girard's mimetic theory and open and relational theology. On today's show, Jonathan is going to chat with his friend, Dr. Thomas J. Ward, and throw a handful of your questions at him. And if you like their discussion, you can listen to even more of it on Jonathan's Patreon page. And why would he do that? Because Tom is smart. What more do you want? I dare you to like the show, leave a review, and share it with a friend. Okay, let's do it. All right, everybody. I hope you're doing well. I'm here with my friend, the Dr. Thomas J. Ord. Good to have you, Tom. Feels weird you saying it like that. Just <laughs> Tom. Just Tom. <laughs> Or how about do you have do you have a DJ name? What would it be? You know, uh, when I was teaching undergraduates, my nickname was Doctor Love. So <laughs> kind of hard to kind of hard to live up to, but <laughs> <laughs> Doctor Love that'll work. I was, I was thinking maybe Tommy O. Ah, yeah. Well, you know, in high school, I was more people called me T O than T-O. called me Tom. So. <laughs> Well, I've been called a lot of things. <laughs> so, anyhow, it's good to have Tom with us today. Uh, lots of our listeners or watchers um, will know Tom already, but um, he's an author and an intellectual and has been working in the open and relational field and even coined the phrase open and relational for quite some time. And it's uh, always fascinating to me because Tom and I have a very similar backgrounds mm-hmm. church wise and age wise and mm-hmm. i don't know ethnicity wise and you know probably lots of things um he's from the west coast i'm from the midwest but i'm jealous because you you got exposed somehow to process and that kind of stuff like 20 or 30 years ago and i guess i was just uh it just took me longer you know <laughs> i wasn't really exposed to it till about five or six seven years ago so but it's an interesting thing to say because, you know, some of the ideas that are most helpful in our lives, we were not exposed to them based on circumstances, histories, context, environments. And what you're doing with this podcast is exposing people to helpful ideas. So kudos to you. Thank you. That is true. Um, so anyhow, Tom has uh, Tom's been a big influence on me both theologically and as a friend. So um, I highly recommend you guys pick up any of his books or listen to his podcast. You could do what I do sometimes. Um, I'll just search in the, in my podcast platform, you know, for different people. So sometimes I'll search for Thomas J. Ord and you won't have any problem finding him. <laughs> podcast. Yeah, strange last name, double O-R-D. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Don't search for Dr. Love. Search for <laughs> Thomas J. Hord. Anyhow, it's good to have you, man. You doing good? I am. Thanks for this opportunity to chat. That's right. What are you uh 
Well, I know you're working on some stuff. What, what are you working on right now? Oh, I'm working on another controversial book. Nice. Yeah. What's it going to be called? Tentative title is, well, actually, I talked, I think I talked to you about this at uh, OrtCon at the uh, summer conference. Uh, mm -hmm. But the title I'm right now going with is The Death of Omnipotence. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and I'm going to argue that there's no good biblical reason to affirm omnipotence, no good philosophical reason, and perhaps biggest of all, there's no good existential or experiential reason to think God is omnipotent. Sign me up. I will <laughs> like it. <laughs> One of the things I was surprised um, a little bit, and, and I don't think you were surprised or have been surprised when people start diving into open and relational, but on the dissertation was how much I kept returning to that theme or how much it kept emerging. This idea of, I call it capital O omnipotence, mm -hmm. misguided at best to damaging uh, at worst way that it's uh, affected us. That was really surprising. Yeah. Omnipotence has so many dimensions and implications for uh, Christianity. I mean, obviously, is the question of why does a omnipotent God not prevent the genuine evil in the world? Mm -hmm. But the question of like revelation, why doesn't this God always give us crystal clear messages or deliver a biblical text that's totally consistent? And, uh, you know, why doesn't this God prevent climate change? or make sure that um, goods and services, uh, the basic necessities of life are evenly distributed around the world, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, the questions of, as you put it, big O omnipotence, those are far reaching. Yes, yeah, I'm glad you're doing that. That's cool. Uh, some of you probably know that um, my dissertation was with Tom at a place called Northwind Seminary. So how how's that been going for you? It looks like you have a lot of well, in my little circle, seems like every other person I know now is studying with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, congrats to you for successfully defending your Thank dissertation, you. doing the you know the uh, little suggested changes, and yep. and having that book come out, Sue. That's really really cool. Thank you, appreciate it. Uh, but yeah, I feel good about the program. There's about. 25 or so students, mm -hmm. uh, most in the U.S., but in other parts of the world, too. And um, what's cool about it, as you know, is everything can be done online these days. So I get to work one-on-one -on -one with each of the students in an online scenario, and it's pretty convenient for everybody. Yeah, that is that was super helpful for me. You know, my wife and I talked about a few different things before I started, and um, we quickly came to the conclusion that uh, what do you call it? Oxford style is what you do? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That, that for me was by far the best route to go, which was basically giving the student latitude to, you know, suggest things and, uh, take input from you obviously as well, but I uh, found all that to be super helpful. So. Cool. Cool. Yeah. I'm glad, glad to hear it. You know, when I, before I started directing this program, if someone asked me, um, you know, how should I pick a doctoral program? I would say you pick a doctoral program much differently than you do a master's program. A master's program, you think about the kind of course offerings, the, uh, the, the um, course titles, um, that are going to be available to you and your fellow students as you go through the program together. 
Whereas in a doctoral program, you want to think about the individual you really want to work closely with. Mm. And because you're not really doing that much with other, even in, you know, face-to-face or residential doctor programs, you're really doing most of your stuff with your advisor. Mm-hmm. So um, it, was a, it was great fun working with you. It was fun. Do you have room if people want to Definitely, study yeah. and how, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? Center for Open and Relational? You know, yeah, um, the uh, the doctoral program is actually at Northwind Theological Seminary, but probably the easiest way is if they just reach out to me with their questions and as an email at tjoord at nnu dot edu. Cool. What'd you learn about Rene Girard? i learned he's a pretty complex person that's true uh yeah i knew that uh, i knew about his mimetic theory uh i didn't know as much about obviously him as you did in terms of what he had to say about desire and sociology i knew i guess i knew his scapegoating stuff pretty Mm -hmm. well too Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah you had a great kind of combining his anthropological psychological um, focus with the metaphysics of open and relational thought, I thought was really intriguing. It is intriguing. And you've got, uh, we have a mutual friend, Andre, who's doing um, also Girard and open and relational. And it's crazy because his paper is dramatically different than mine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, he just sent me the, the most recent draft uh, oh, this morning, I think. Yeah, so that's pretty cool. So. Um, Hopefully he gets it right because I don't know if I got it right. So, <laughs> someone's got to get it right. We got two chances. Well, all right. Um, so here's the deal for this season of the podcast. I'm calling it Frequently Asked Questions. And I posted something, oh gosh, a couple, three months ago. And I got about 80 or so responses, questions. And I, and I then took them and tried to categorize them into different groups and I've been trying to filter them through Girardian thinking and or open and relational thinking. And having said that, today's questions aren't, they're all across the board. They're, they're going to cover all different kinds of categories. And so I thought it'd be fun to bring you in on some of these. So you haven't heard any of these. Um, and then we'll probably do a couple, three here. And then maybe we'll do a couple, three on the Patreon. So that way, if people want to continue to hear you, like, in other words, if you do well enough, <laughs> people will sign up to be patrons of your show, huh? <laughs> yeah. And if I get no new patrons, I, I guess we know what that means. <laughs> all right. You ready for this? I am. Okay. These are, these are all the average age person who asked. I didn't know every single person, but I knew most of them. It's probably about 24. I would guess that's the average age. So you got to think okay. of like a college recent grad or a, uh, into the college years. Um, here we go. Here's a good one. Can each major world religion possibly be so intrinsically tied together at their origin that there is no right religious belief? What do you or open relational theology have to say about that question? You want me to say it again? I think I, I get the sense of it. Um, I would say that an open and relational person would want to claim that every of the one of the major religions has helpful resources, can provide 
an aspect or a measure of truth, um, but that various religions have different emphases and different ideas, and they're not all the same, uh, nor what I claim as a Christian, all of them are equally valuable. Uh, but some religions focus on issues differently, different than the Christian religion does, for instance. So like, let's take Pure Land Buddhism. Um, in that particular form of Buddhism, there's no deity. And, you know, I'm a Christian, I believe in God. <laughs> but um, the Buddhists tend to have a strong sense of the flow of existence and a way of aligning oneself with that flow that I think is valuable. And you could find probably in some aspects of Christianity, but it's just not emphasized in the same way as you can find in Buddhism. So um, short answer, not all the religions are the same, not, nor do we have to think they're all, all equally valuable. But we also don't have to think one religion's got it right and all the rest of them are dead wrong about everything. Nice. Yeah, we share some common denominators. But like you said, some are more valuable than others. I think that's, that's probably true. And the thing, you know, a lot of times in these kind of discussions, people will say things like, um, you know, it's the old analogy of different people touching different parts of the elephant. And, you know, someone thinks it's a trunk, someone recognizes it's a trunk and someone re recognizes its leg and someone is feeling the tusk and it's all these different, but it's the same elephant. But what's funny with the open relational process stuff over the last few years, you know, you start realizing, well, the elephant is actually experiencing too. So the interconnectedness of how it flows both ways. And I wonder, I wonder if in that analogy, if, uh, would God be the elephant and is God experiencing us experiencing him or her? Yeah. Well, if God is the elephant, then yeah, I like that analogy a lot that God is experiencing and God's experiences change as we interact with various dimensions of God. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a new book out by Bruce Epperly who uses that same elephant example except he says he doesn't equate the elephant with God. He equates the elephant with all the religions and then says we should think of the elephant as running. And what he means by that is that every religion, including Christianity, changes over time. Mm -hmm. And so um, we shouldn't think that we're you know, going to get the essence of this religion that's timelessly the same, but even uh, that all religions are in flux, which has both good and bad sides to it. You know, yeah, I look at the Christian tradition and, and see some portions of it, some denominations or theological traditions and just think, oh man, that sucks. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't, I don't appreciate that uh, at all, or at least not very much. Uh, but if things can change, that gives me hope that those portions of the Christian tradition or those traditions within the Christian tradition don't have to stay the same forever. Yep. I like it. All right. We're changing completely different directions. I, got, I got quite a few questions about like meaning uh, and meaning making. Mm. And so this young person says, who am I supposed to be? 
how would you respond to that? I know that doesn't oh. give you a lot, but yeah. where does your brain go when you hear a question like that? My brain immediately goes to the LGBTQ debate and the question of whether or not gender or sexuality is a static essence or whether or not there's more of a spectrum and what we call non-binary people are um, don't have uh, aren't clearly uh, either the uh, male or female mm -hmm. so uh, in that particular debate there's these philosophical assumptions underlying two of the major positions we'll call it the classical tradition has an assumption that every human has an essence and the essence part of that essence is to either be male or female and you're fully male or fully female but nothing else because that is just the way christians would say in that tradition would say that's the way god made it but these are the essences if you're aristotelian you might use a little different language but that's so everything is sort of already decided but if you're in um, a view like mine that says um, humans don't have an essence or an eternal nature, but we're a conglomeration of forces, factors, our own free will, divine influence, and there are no eternal static essences that define who we are, then there's a lot more flexibility when we think about genders and sexuality, et cetera. So to the question then, who who am I or what was it? Who am I who, supposed to be? Who am I supposed to be? Um, I would say who you're supposed to be. There's some general sort of categories that I think as a Christian, God is calling you to be like God is calling you to be a loving person. God is calling you to transform your life and the world towards what's positive. God's calling you to appreciate beauty where you find it. God's calling you to... Uh, um, affirm the truths, etc. And then there are tons of variables that depend on the individual and the situation and their history and what's possible and um, their own uh, desires and, and uh, interests. So when you get to the particularities, there's all a wide range of things who we might be. And in fact, we end up changing moment by moment and trying to decide who we are mm -hmm. and we have multiple identities um i think that's just the way life is it's interesting uh, now that's good um it makes me think as soon as you started talking about the sexuality piece uh in the christian tradition we're pretty good generally about saying god god loves everyone across the spectrum of physical differences and mental capabilities and emotional experiences, et cetera, et cetera. But man, we've been so bad applying that same criteria to our sexuality. Right. So that's one of the things I've been realizing for a few years now is, well, if God loves us in all in the fluidity of all those other things, because you can't be nailed down on one thing, why wouldn't that be the case with our sexuality? Right, right. Yep. Yeah. That's good. And I hope um, if yeah, that who am I supposed to be? You already hit on it a couple of times. You, th this movement, this changing thing, and identities change and stuff changes. So, I know an open relational yeah. world becoming is more. 
important than being? Is that the way to say it? Right. Yeah. Or comes prior, logically prior to being. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, here, here's, here's an um, illustration of how um, con most contemporary Americans have changed the way they think about this ultimate question, who should I be? Or, um, And that illustration is our employment. You know, we think about our uh, parents or grandparents who very easily could have stayed in one job their entire lives or entire working lives, um, whereas today that's just so rare. And so in the past, when you said, you know, maybe my grandfather said, well, I'm a farmer, that was his identity. Or my grandmother might say, you know, I don't know, I'm a homemaker, probably is what she would call herself. But let's put her in, the, I'm a shopkeeper. You know, that's my identity. I, I keep a shop. Whereas today, you know, like when I talk about myself, I usually have much more general categories. Like theologian seems more general than I'm professor at X university because I might not be professor at X university for very long. Who knows? Um, so I think we're learning as a society, at least in our part of the world, to not think that our identity is totally tied up in our occupation. Uh, it's gonna take a while for some people to realize their identity doesn't have to be totally tied up in their gender or sexuality. Yeah, that's good input, man. Thanks. All right, completely changing here. Here's, a, okay. here's another question. This is kind of a two-parter, and actually, there's no real question in here. It's more, <laughs> it's more comments, but... But in between the lines, there's a lot of questions. And so it's a two-parter, and it comes from two different people. One is a, is a friend of mine who um, is kind of our age and who had met up with a Christian counselor who was going to be working with their college-aged son. And the counselor told her, all depression is because of sin. So that's the first part. That's the first little part of the story. Here's the second is a, a friend of mine who's a healthcare worker who uh, works with people who've um, attempted suicide. She processes them as they come into their place. And she said the overwhelming majority of them are young people and that it's interesting because I complete uh, a whole bio uh, psycho psychosocial assessment with each patient. And I ask if they have any spiritual practices or religious preferences. Most people automatically say they don't believe in God, but I have noticed that those who do state a religion are more full of shame about what they are going through than those who don't. Mm. Mm. Which I thought was an interesting comment. So yeah. there's a common denominator in there somewhere, the idea that all, all mental health problems are because of sin. And then the other part of it is she's noticing how many more young people who claim to have a belief in God are feeling shame over their problems. So what would you like yeah, to well, say to that? Well, on the depression one, um, perhaps the person meant to say that the possibility of depression emerged in history because of the fall or Adam and Eve's sin. I mean, that's about the best um, framing I can give that. And 
I don't think that's even that's right. So <laughs> I, I have a hard time with that that particular statement. Um, I think sometimes people experience depression because of what we oftentimes call chemical imbalances in their heads, and those might have occurred because of um, random mutations or random events, the neurotransmitters. Um, so there's all kinds of things that uh, could make our could deteriorate our mental health that we or others didn't purposely do that's wrong. It could just be uh, some sort of physical ailment. Um, so I, I don't, I, I recoil at that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> now I'm not going to say that depression has nothing ever to do with sin because that, that might not be the case. It's going to be a case by case situation. Right? What's your definition of sin? Well, if sin is, I, I like to say sin is failing to love in the way that God calls us to in any particular moment. So, um, you know, if God calls us to love because that's the healthy thing to do, and we fail to do that, in some instances, we might end up experiencing depression. Mm -hmm. In other instances, it may be because other people fail to <laughs> cooperate with God's call to love, and we're the victims of their uh, harm. So, um, and then of course I mentioned that there might be just some random events and things happening at the physical level. It's nobody's fault that contribute to depression or lead to depression. So I guess I don't want to take sin all the way off the table, but I definitely wouldn't put it the way that you mentioned it as if everything in depression comes from sin in some way. Yeah. In terms of that shame one, ah, that's a really interesting insight. I mean, I, I think that maybe one reason people from religious backgrounds have more shame is that people from religious backgrounds are probably more um, told they need to, they should meet up to certain standards. And, um, and I, you know, that can be done abusively for sure, but it can also be done, I think, in a healthy way. Um, you know, when you try to tell your kids that um, they're going to live a better life if they don't stay up until five in the morning before they have to go to school at seven, you're saying that because you know that the lack of sleep is going to make them feel crappy and do poorly in school. So it's not, and so, but if they stay up till five and then go to school and they're, they're shameful, you kind of say, well, you know, that's kind of part of <laughs> part of the consequence for for the decisions you make. But unfortunately, in the Christian tradition, shame has been um, laid upon people for things that they shouldn't feel shameful for. Um, the most obvious one here is sexuality issues again, that certain practices, sexual practices have been thought to be sinful and therefore if you engage in them you should feel shameful and that shame not only is sometimes placed upon the person who uh enacts that sexual activity it's also sometimes placed upon the person who is the victim of other people's sexual uh, sexual mm -hmm. activities mm -hmm. so shame is a really tricky one um I, I see almost like a pendulum in this historically jonathan that is in the past um, shame was 
thought to be a good thing because it would drive us to repentance and drive us to Jesus, we might say, in our tradition. <laughs> so you feel shameful and you want to overcome that psychologically or positionally by having a right relationship with God, confessing those sins, getting those burdens and shame lifted from you. And um, and then because of that, some people really laid it on thick to make people feel guilty and shameful <laughs> to get them to say yes. But the pendulum, I think, is some today is sometimes too, swung too far the other way, and that is that any sense of shame is thought to be, well, you shouldn't be shameful about anything you've done. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I, I I don't think that's right either. I mean, I'm ashamed of some of the things I've done because they've hurt me and others, and they've caused harm. So um, finding that that balance is difficult. Um, well, I'm kind of meandering now. Maybe I should just stop here. No, I, I, to your last point, I agree with that. I guess I'm trying to come up with a better word than shame. There's so much yeah. baggage with that. And it is a yeah. coercive thing. It's not something that feels like love is interested. And in our work, your work, and certainly my work, uh, I just keep cycling around how great it is to have a somewhat decent handle on a theology now that helps me empower people and um, encourage people to grow in their agency and their autonomy. All those things are mm. like shame doesn't really live in those circles, kind of like the other circles. So, but I, but also, but I hear what you're saying. Like, yeah, I'm embarrassed about things I've done too. So yeah, I guess I just don't like that word. Have you had, have you had people say shame on you? Probably when I was younger, but not in a long time. I've had I've had grown adult, almost said grown ass adults. I've had grown <laughs> adults, you know, mature, supposedly Christians, in the last few years, just lean across the coffee table and point their finger and say, "Shame on you," for some of the things I or was. What did you do? Oh well, my theology oh, teaching her. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, gotcha. Yeah. Oh, oh. Yeah. 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 I thought. Yeah, I, I could see. I thought that was amazing that they would both be immature enough to say that, but also have been indoctrinated so deeply into this thing that they don't see how antithetical that is to, to love and to grace. Yeah. So I, I didn't take their, their shame. I said, thank you. No, <laughs> I do not take it. So. There's a kind of a, a group of people who maybe these are the shamers. I don't know uh, who feel like it's their, responsibility to, to defend the faith mm-hmm. and um and those people when i utter theological claims that they don't like um i don't know if they've ever said shame on you but they've acted in ways that they were yeah. trying to heap shame on me right. <laughs> right. and um, obviously i i disagree with that yeah yeah right they may not have said shame on you but it's there's a whole bunch of other synonymous terms and body language and behavior that accompany all that. Yeah, yeah. that's a lot of fun. I got that yeah, on actually, a podcast. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say I got that on a podcast interview just a couple of nights ago. People. Oh, really? They wanted to talk about my book, and then they they didn't say shame, but they were just like they were livid at some of the stuff I wrote. It was awesome. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> I I wrote something on Facebook earlier this week and a person I don't really know got on there and criticized me harshly 
for my position. Oh, I know what it was. It was, it was that I was going to theology beer camp. This person got on there and said, this is not what a holiness person does while drinking beer isn't necessarily evil. Drunkenness is. And he quoted that, uh, have no appearance of evil or whatever that line uh, is. Yeah. Abstain from all appearance of evil. Yeah. And so that was a kind of a, he was trying to shame mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. And for those remarks, he got unfriended. By the way, if any, he got unfriended. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And if any Nazarenes are listening, Tom will go to the theology beer camp and he won't have any drinks. <laughs> this is true. I mean, I'm not against Nazarene's drinking, but for yeah. me personally, I don't drink. So <laughs> it's never, I never really, I've never gotten into it either. So yeah, even though I'm no longer Nazarene, as we both know. <laughs> okay. Um, this has been a lot of fun. Do you have a, do you have a few more minutes? Because what yeah. we're going to do now is we're going to transition off of the podcast. We're going to take the rest of this conversation onto the Patreon page. And so if you have been uh, appropriately engaging, people will jump over there uh, to listen to you. And you know I'm kidding because they talk about me too. All right. I've got a few more questions for you. Thanks for being with us. Listen to the rest of the conversation on JF's Patreon page. And to find out more info on Tom, well, just throw Thomas J. Ord into your search browser. You can't miss him. Or pick up a copy of Jonathan's book, Theology of Consent because Tom is referenced it a couple dozen times there. We'll catch you next time. It's your time. Join global thought leader, executive producer, and New York Times bestselling author T.D. Jakes and today's leading culture shifters for an experience unlike any other. At the 2024 International Leadership Summit, spiritual and business leaders can gain the practical tools they need to maximize their timing for success. With world-class discussions, breakout sessions, and networking opportunities, this is where your dreams turn into reality. Timing is everything, and your time is now. March 21st through 23rd in Dallas, Texas. Register today at thisisils.org.